Hola, mi gente. My name is Jessica Yanez, and I want you to join me for some wine and chisme. The Wine and Chisme podcast was created to amplify voices across communities of color, all while drinking a glass of wine. From wine talk, interviews, and recaps of all things pop culture, join me every Wednesday for the chisme. Please make sure to check out the Wine and Chisme podcast and other amazing podcasts as part of the Latina Podcasters Network. Hola, hola, mi gente. It's your girl, Odalis Jasmine, and y'all are tuning into Hello Latino. Today, I'm talking to Hector Terrero, coming from Dominican Republic, being first generation, and finally landing his dream job has been a huge part of his journey. Today, Hector talks about his story of being one of the very few Latino engineers working at one of the biggest tech companies in the world, Apple. From shopping at Payless to being bullied to growing up in the Bronx and now traveling the world, wearing the freshest kicks and designing and making products for a brand that we use every single day. He's here to talk about the whole cheesement, the whole journey, the whole bochinche. Let's get into it. Like, should I say how we met or not? That's just what this stuff is. That's a funny story and a long story. And a long story. That's a long story. That's the cafecito and cheese (laughs) bit. We could come back to it because we have to remember the keys and and the jacket. Oh, oh, I forgot about all that. Oh, yeah. Right, right, right. Oh, Lord. Back (laughs) in the day. Anyways, I'm really excited to have you on the podcast. I feel like we've been talking about it for a minute. I've just been super proud of like all the things that you're doing with Moneda, with I see you posting about Apple and doing your Apple stuff too and being a proud <laughs> Latino in tech. And just shout out to you, Hector, for all the things that you're doing. Shout out. Yeah, thank you. I think shout outs to you. I think it's a community. You know, we moved out in the Bay Area. Chasing the dream, I think, right? We were all just like, what are we even doing here? Right, we're just expats in a brand new city, not knowing anybody, and we meet people like us along the way. And I think having that sense of community is, is really something. I'm so proud of you too, and all the great work we do with Hela Latina and the podcast. And I remember we just started. I remember the day you first posted the cover that your friend made. No way, really? Yes. Yeah, for course. I really remember that day. You know, your friend, we did a great job putting this together because it really represented everything you were. And you were just about to get started. And so here you are, right? a couple of episodes later, and super success. I've seen a lot of the mentions and the rankings. Oh, well, thank you. I didn't even know we knew each other for that long. <laughs> like you saw the very first post. Yeah. Wow. Well, let's talk about let's talk about all things Hector. I want to start with the first question. How do you identify and why? Oh, that's a good question. I think I might identify as, I say a Latino, and sometimes I even say Afro-Latino, mostly because I feel like there are rooms where if you don't really come your full self, like I feel like half of the people miss your identity, right? I think that, you know, in certain days, I feel like saying Latino doesn't compensate that part of my heritage. Trace back to Africa. 
but there are just people who are willing to debate and argue that. And sometimes you just kind of make the statement and go for it. So I was born and raised in the Dominican Republic, the beautiful island of the Dominican Republic. I came to the U.S. when I was 10. And I think that even today where the discrimination and the classism and the racism is at all time high in the Dominican Republic, it's even more important to claim our heritage just even for the sake of education. Yeah. Can you, not that you are a history teacher for all Dominican Republic, but you touched on this like discrimination and colorism that exists in Dominican Republic. Can you give us a little bit of history, insight, and context on where that comes from? Yeah. So as you know, uh, the Dominican Republic, there's the island with Haiti. And so uh, the Española was split between the two. And um, for some circumstances, the Dominican Republic happened to have gotten the better side of history or have landed on the better side of history in the sense that we have tend to be a more prosperous uh, country, currently far more stable, um, not that it is a developed country or anything anywhere near the U.S., but, but it's definitely doing slightly or a lot better than, than Haiti. Um, and I think that there's a, there had been, and so much so that in a sense, there had been a lot of migration happening from Haiti to the Dominican Republic. And the best way that I can t- typically describe it to people is very similar to how we have a lot of like Mexican migration coming over from Mexico into, into the U.S. And all the same social political issues are happening there, right? Where um, and I, a lot of Dominicans might feel like Haitians are, there's a huge influx of Haitians coming into the country, taking over the tax money and the job availability. They're also taking over the resources and the hospitals and they're bringing a lot of diseases and they're bringing a lot of crimes into the country. And, and generally everything, something people go ahead and always blame Haitians for some reason. Um, and I think it's an interesting, interesting sort of like story because in a way, like Dominicans are just black as Haitian, right? But somehow we have this racial divide in the country where the the wider looking Dominicans, and we do have the, the blonde hair, you eyes, white skin Dominicans, uh, just like we have the super dark black Dominicans, they tend to segregate between color. And those that tend to be a little bit darker are, if you go into the country, you often see the darker Dominicans. Uh, be the service workers, while the lighter Dominicans, the corporate employees, and the face of most things, TV, um, you name it, radio. And so in, in that sense, I feel like Dominican Republic has continued the influence of colonialism and whitewashing mentality where being a certain color skin denotes you to be slightly better than others. Yeah, I think there was a point in time where there was a the one of the presidents of the Dominican Republic. They tried to revoke the citizenship of all Haitians who were born in the Dominican Republic but had heritage or parents born in Haiti. So if you were born in the Dominican Republic and were a Dominican but you somehow had a Haitian parent, your citizenship was revoked. And this is something that is still happening today. Wow. Tell me about that immigration story from DR to, you went to New York, correct? Uh, Tell me about so that immigration story. 
Yeah, it started with mom. Uh, so back when uh, my mom, when I was four years old, uh, my mom happened to have gotten the privilege uh, uh, or the opportunity to to travel to the U.S. When all the paperwork were originally submitted, the goal was that me, mom, and my siblings will all go together to the U.S. Unfortunately, there was some mis uh, miscommunication as well as some some downside to the whole process where my papers and my siblings were denied and the residency was only given to my mom. At the time, my mom was a victim of uh, home violence and, and abuse. Uh, and uh, he, she kind of took the opportunity as a way to escape uh, what was happening back at home. Um, because otherwise, you fear that she might not um, be able to survive the circumstances. Um, and so she had to, she was met with a tough decision to leave us behind and be able to escape in hope that in the future she'd be able to go for her citizenship and somehow get us naturalized as citizens to be able to get us out of the country. During that time, you know, my father was not as, as stable as, as we all hoped for him to be. And so we were relocated with my grandmother. So grew up with my grandmother from the age of four to the age of 10. And right at the age of 10, my mom got the citizenship. We became naturalized while in the Dominican Republic, and we managed to be able to travel to the U.S. and reunite with my mother when I was 10. That was, was tough because you, you, you grew up with your grandparents, and then you're in a completely different country now with your mom, which you're supposed to love and, and feel this affection for, but it's been a long time, right? And so you have to kind of like reestablish those connections, those boundaries, and understand, okay, what happens next, right? To my mom's fear, I used to be a troublemaker back in the Dominican Republic. I used to be kicked out of school like every week. Every week I would get oh, kicked out of school on. for fighting. We were in a private school. So what happens is that when you get kicked out of school, you had to pay admission again. So I guess they, they really enjoyed oh doing God. so because they'll get a new check every week, right? My mom was back in school. So coming to the U.S., my mom's biggest fear was like, oh my God. He's such a troublemaker. He's going to get into bull. He's going to like become like one of these dogs to the streets and I'm a big friend right. that happens with both parents. <laughs> but turned out quite different. Turned out quite different. And tell me about that though, because I don't think it's always easy to go in a different direction, especially when you're being raised in, I mean, paint the picture for me. Like, what was it like to grow up in New York? Like, was there... Was there a moment where you're like, should I go over there or should I do this other path? Like, tell me about those moments and those decisions. Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I, in, in the Dominican Republic, I went from being this like tough kid that used to fight every day to being this kid that was consistently bullied in school. Right. So I was placed in this ESL school for kids who were getting spoke English. Uh, most of the kids in my, all of the kids in my classroom didn't spoke English either. We were all mostly Spanish speaking because we moved to Washington Heights, which is the Dominican version of New York City, pretty much. <laughs> and, uh, most of the kids were with Dominicans, but, but at the school, there were other classrooms that were, uh, mainstream English. And so what would generally happen is that those kids who spoke very well English and had grew up in New York their whole lives, they would always mingle with the kids who 
didn't speak English and took took that as an opportunity to bully them in one way or another. And so my mom, you know, she's a single mom and um, she's trying to raise three kids. She just did this huge effort to bring them over to the U.S. She had this one, like, tiny one-bedroom slash studio apartment in New York City. And in there was me, my two siblings, and my mom's boyfriend at the time. Uh, We were all living in this one-bedroom apartment. And we had to figure a way to kind of like arrange ourselves in a way that was safe, uh, comfortable for everybody and, and kind of make it work. So part of some of those sacrifices was that I wasn't wearing the latest Nike. And if you know anything about New York City, you know it's about the swag, right? And so you have these kids growing up from very early age, uh, just rocking the latest J's or Nike, the, the North Face coat. You know what I mean? Back in the days of 2000s, the North Face coat, like, Big ragged coats. There used to be like the streets where like back in the days, and I didn't have any of that, right? My mom couldn't afford a two hundred, three hundred dollars North Face jacket or whatever J's those hundred bucks J's. So I had to rely on the Chags from Payless. Um, and I remember not going Payless. To oh my god, CBT. And it was it was tough because in my head I knew that I didn't want to wear them, right? And I remember will be so happy to take me to Taylor's to get repairs of shoes. And I'm like, oh, man, here it comes. And I really had to right. wear them. And I had to wear them to school, too. And so um, <laughs> I will always be made fun of in school for wearing tags, uh, Taylor's clothes, and, and, and old navy. But that was all mom could afford at the time. And so I was bullied quite a lot. And uh, there was always this little kid. He had the, he had the, this is a funny story, though, full circle. He had the first iPod, right? And uh, he was the the one that used to bully me a lot. And I remember one time during summer camp, uh, we were making a line to go to this public public pool park, and in that he, they were all behind me. They bit in my head, and then like slapped it. And then I turned around to figure out who did that. And it's pretty much just like the group of them. So I couldn't really single anybody out, right? And they would do things very consistently. And so I remember on that trip. He had brought his iPod, which was the first iPod that ever came out. And all the kids were like, oh my God, I'm going to listen to it. And all the cool kids were like chasing after him. And for me, I was like, I had to stay from a very far distance because I knew this is the guy that that is currently bullying me. And there's no way in hell he will ever let me come close to this iPod, right? But that was my first memory of what Apple was in that terrible environment experience with this guy. Wow. And here you are making products or whatever. No, I, I think it's super funny because I was reflecting on that not too long ago, actually, with some friends. Because seeing that story, revisiting that in my in my head, I remember when I got the opportunity to touch my first iPod, right? My first first Apple product was an iPod mini, uh, iPod mini. And I remember it's because um, my mom couldn't afford the bigger iPod. So eventually as the iPod became more popular, Apple came with the more affordable version, which was the iPod mini. And generally these iPods are supposed to be for a personal device, right? But my mom can one for the entire house. And so we had to take turns between me and my two sisters and my mom. We have to split the music playlist, who got to listen to it? What time? So you have a whole household sharing oh the cheapest version 
of this device that was meant to be very personalized. But I feel like that was my first impression of like, fine, I too can get this product, not just this bully key in school. Yeah. Um, and so I couldn't get my hands on it then, but, but Apple made it possible for my family to afford it too and for me to get my hands on it, even if it was a version of it, right? The smaller version, the cheapest one, and I had to share it with my whole family, but that's okay. I got my hands on it. And, and today I can say that I went from dreaming about ever touching this product to being one of the engineers. Oh, man, bro, that was super problem. Snaps to that. That's so, <laughs> such a Latino story of sharing an iPad. Oh my God. Or iPod. Lord. <laughs> but it was always. Oh, you should have, not, we were not the only ones. <laughs> no, 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 no. I had to share mine with my parents, which was the worst. I'm like, how do my brothers get their own personal one? Y yo con mis papas. Like it was, I couldn't have my music on there because they'd be like, y esto? Y esto que estás escuchando? Like, it's the worst. It's personal. It's meant to be a personal device, right? Like uh, people, people be judging you. They think that your whole set of music determines your character. It's not true. Sometimes we, there's people who want to listen to the hardcore music, but there's some of my gym bros that they listen to that soft music in the gym. You know, it would be rocking or whatever, whatever <laughs> drives your boat. But but the thing is something yeah. that um, is very personal and nonetheless. So I want to know the story of like you being bullied in school to how did you get into college and then how did you start working at Apple? Like, I want to know what that journey and first-gen experience was like for you. Yeah, so in the middle of all this, what, what this bullying was happening, I was uh, somehow, I was very naturally driven towards math and science. And so before the end of the year finished, there was this, this program that had just started in New York City, that it was not even a school yet. They were just testing with concept. And it was this idea that for kids who, who were good at math and science, somehow the English was holding them back. Um, they were starting this school that was meant to cater to those individuals. What was happening is that in the school that I was at the time, because I was an ESL student, the math and the science that they were giving us were almost like dummy down or slow down because of the English barrier. But if you really think about it, science and math are language agnostic, right? And like at the end of the day, this math and the science is the same independent of language. And so there was this principal who took a, took a bet and said, okay, I'm going to go out there and find these very bright students who can benefit from entering this program where we they get the same level of math and science as everybody else, independent of the language skills. And we, we're not going to be teaching them English, but rather we're just going to teach them the actual subject we already teach in school. And we hope that they pick up the English along the way. And so yeah. my mom got an invitation to go into this program and, and they brought her in and was like, hey, they briefed all the parents. So there were a bunch of students that got invitations from different schools. And when we'll come in and they explained to her, hey, you know, we think your son could be a little bit more inclined to the math and science, but we feel like the English is holding him back. We have started this program. It's not an official school yet. Uh, once we graduate a few students, it, we can apply for the certification, but we would like to have your kids to be part of a pilot program. Um, and so my mom accepted me into the program and one, I got lucky because that pulled me out of this school where I was 
system bullied by those kids and put me into this mm-hmm. program where everybody else in the entire school was in my shoes. Um, and so it kind of created like an equal part across all the classes. Um, one of the things about the program was that none of the teachers spoke Spanish. So I guess I mean, that was kind of their way for for them to say, oh, they, there's no way for you to like teach English because the teachers didn't know Spanish, so you didn't bother doing the translation. And so mm. when you show up to the school, you are out here pointing at things and doing hand signs just to communicate <laughs> to the teachers who didn't quite speak Spanish and, and none of the students in the school spoke English either. And so that was tough at first, but over time, somehow it worked. And so as I graduated middle school, I came into high school already speaking English. And so it took me about six to eight months in being in the U.S. to catch up to being in English. And a year later, after arriving in the U.S., you could say that I was English fluent enough to get along, get get across school. So when I went to high school, I went to also a very specialized high school focused on international studies, where all the students have some form of international background. And you also get to major like in a language. And in that school, we, that school was put in place because in, in the campus that it existed in, the Kennedy campus in the Bronx, it was a very bad school and it had thousands of students in one place. So to make the school safer, they ended up breaking this one school with like five to 10,000 students into five different schools. And then they introduced this one school at the top, which was my school, where we had to wear uniforms. We had to like obey by a completely different set of rules than everybody else. And so we looked very different, very apart. And one of the things that helped with that was that, well, I was no longer bullying about the clothes I was wearing because we were all wearing the button-down shirt with the khaki or navy blue jean uh, pants and the, the tie, right? So that was, I think that was a good positive thing because now you're able to stem away from the negative influences and experience in the school based on what you look like. And in a way, I think it was one of the first experiences I had about um, being able to do the work that you're being asked to without necessarily having to worry about how you look. So mm, while most kids yeah. will complain about going to school and wearing uniform, I was actually thankful because I no longer had to rely on whether I was, I had the, the latest or greatest piece of clothing to show up to school and fear that I would be bullied based on what I had to work with that. And that allowed me to continue my passion for math and science. I've always been competitive in a way. And so in New York City, <laughs> we had these, these exams called the, the region exam. Uh, and every kid in, in New York City takes them across the board. And I remember my goal was to get the highest math region exam score in the entire school. But it was me and this girl in the class, and we were just competitive the whole way. <laughs> and every year, we, w- we would try to answer who would get the highest region forge exam for our class grade level. And so throughout the years, it will would change when it will be me. But the next year, it will be, it will be her. And, and so we went over <laughs> into that senior year trying to outscore each other in these exams. But that's when I was introduced to RIT. We had a professor who, who came to me and said, hey, I think your talent for science I think your talent for math it is outstanding. And there's this very good engineering school of St. New York that I think you can benefit from if you go there. I was very into the performing arts at the time. I was a dancer. I was actually in a what? dance company. What? I didn't know that. I know, I know. A lot of people want to know that about me. <laughs> I always wanted to be a, 
A dancer. I wanted to be a dancer and an actor. And I was in two companies in New York City, uh, MCC Theater Company and Young Brands Makers Company. I got accepted into both while in high school. And uh, my mom hated them in a way because every time we had performances or a tour or a concert, uh, I always had to get permission to leave school early to go do rehearsals and practices. So I wanted to go to Juilliard. And I said to my mom, hey, I didn't want to go to Juilliard, but my mom was like, dancing and acting, this stuff doesn't make much money. And um, I think you should go for something a little more like respectful or admirable. And so she wanted, to be, she wanted me to be a civil engineer. So I made a, I made a deal with her. I said, listen, if I get a something into Juilliard, I'm going to apply to one art school program. If I get a something into Juilliard, you know, let me go into the arts. If not, I go and major in whatever engineering you want me to major in. Eventually, uh, one of the rules that Juliet has is that everybody who applies has to have an audition to make it fair for everybody. And so if you apply to Junior, you're guaranteed an audition and you're, you're guaranteed that your application is reviewed. Uh, but to be able to fulfill all the auditions in time, the typical college application deadline is a lot sooner than your traditional college application. And I missed that yeah. ballpark because I followed the common application process where you just do this one program from it all at once. So by the time I submitted on my application, the deadline for junior had passed. And so to keep my promise to my mom, I said, well, definitely not getting into something to junior. So I'll go into engineering and I ended up going into RIT for engineering. That's how you got into engineering. That is so funny. Do you still have dreams of being a dancer? I do. I love dancing. <laughs> I, I think I, I love anybody who knows me. Can tell you dancing, acting, singing are my like go to things when I'm like just at home, but crazy trying to just get over the anxiety that I get almost every day from work. <laughs> oh my god, I am like seeing your name in lights now. I said Hector Terrero, and he's gonna have like, <laughs> he's gonna have all these shows, and we're gonna go. Listen, you never know. I actually have an active subscription to backstage. So every day I go to a list of all the auditions around me and in LA and I have to pay for it. Just because, well, you know, you never know one day I'll be looking at my email and there's this water on the match is exactly this bold guy, Dominican accent or something from New York City. And I'm like, you know what? I'm just, just me. Might as well just give it a shot, right? You never you know. Go. You never know. There you go. And how, and what was it like after? Like, did you have, did you like engineering? I mean, first of all, que Dios te bendiga, because science and math for me were like the worst subjects. I'm like, I like, I don't understand any of this. <laughs> That's why I write now and I speak all the time. But science and math, hell no, I can't do it. I think, you know, it's interesting because I, I'm a product of the public school system in New York City. And that's not a lot. Like, like. You're like, it's bad, like really bad compared to some of the sub suburb schools that most of my colleagues went through when I was in college, right? And so one of the things I noticed was that, you know, there was a lot of us that looked like me that got into RIT. RIT was very good with a lot of some of the diversity and inclusive programs that supported underrepresented minority kids, right? And so I had a full ride scholarship into RIT through, through a minority diversity scholarship. And out of, let's say, a hundred of us who went into engineering, I want to say 10 of us actually graduated from engineering. And I think 
I think the the biggest takeaway and insight that I got from it was that, you know, going into this, I, I had taken AP calculus, AP calculus, AP biology, AP physics back, back in high school. So some of those concepts that I got when I went to college were fairly familiar. And so when I got into calc placement in college, um, I aced my first calculus course. And I immediately, my first Upon my second semester as a freshman year, I became a school calculus tutor, which was very unheard of at the time because usually the tutors and, and the teacher assistants were usually either sophomore or, 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 or juniors, right? But as a freshman, I got lucky enough to become a calculus tutor. And that's because on my second semester, I was placed on a much higher calc level class because I managed to skip. I remember acing calc one. And my, te- my teacher at the time sent me an email saying, hey, Hector, I think that you have been replaced on your calc placement test. And I think you might take advantage of uh, taking this placement test to skip you the next level of calculus and place you in a much, much advanced calculus class. And I took it and, and they did find me a placement. Um, but what so I noticed was that most of my peers, thank you, most of my peers who, who, struggle in that calc class, right? Your first, you know, you didn't go through AP calculus, so you never seen what this calculus thing is. You come from algebra in, in high school. And it is the first time you've seen this and you fail. And what happened was that out of all the students that failed, 90% switched their major just because they failed their first calculus class in college, right? Not because they weren't meant for engineering, not because they weren't good at engineering, there's a lot more to engineering than just calculus, right? And the same thing was true for physics, right? I remember, again, most students when, and people that looked like me early, um, that didn't go to school where they took AP physics, right? And physics was the first time um, they took it. They just failed it. And they was like, oh, it's not for me, right? And what yeah. I learned was that sometimes when it's the first time we're doing something, we don't tend to be the best at it, right? And I think that does relate into that first generation experience, right? Where we stumble and struggle all the time, but just because we fail, that doesn't mean that we give up, right? Like how many times did I not get the Apple job after interviewing for a company like 20 times, right? And so that's what's happening in college where some of the students, they're the first generation in their family to ever go to college and being exposed to this level of rigor of education. And upon the first failure, they was like, I'm switching out. And the support system built around them, right? The counselors were happily like, oh, sure. Yeah, let's switch, you, let's switch majors uh, to something you might be more familiar with, like literature or business or something else that whatever else that took you away from this one obstacle, where it almost seemed like me, like it was like a coping mechanism rather than a way to actually like confront it. Um, and so for me, I, I persisted and, and I failed, like, sure, I took AP physics, um, but I only got into physics one. By the time I got to physics two, I failed physics two, right? So I too was met with that decision of like, do I switch out of engineering because I failed physics two, or do I just take physics two again? And ultimately I, I chose to take physics two and pass, and maybe that was the standard grade on the second time around. But it showed me that the second time around that I saw the material, I was much better at it. And all that to know that most of my peers who came from very well-funded high school had already taken physics, calculus, 
programming courses, right? Computer-aided design. So all these technical classes that we took for the first time in college, most of the peers that I was competing with in college had already prior experience to those. And their parents had already also experienced what that experience looked like. And so it was very likely that they were bound to be more successful than any one of us at competing for this degree. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about access, right? Access to information, to privileged opportunities. And like, I always tell the story of, I went to a really poor school in Southeast San Diego and I didn't know I was learning from these old textbooks and learning like things that weren't relevant anymore. And then going from a school that was poorly funded to a school that was number two in academics in the whole county. Let me tell you, like that was the most that was the first moment I felt like I was dumb. I'm like, I don't know any of this. And like mm-hmm. science and math, like no lo entiendo. I feel like I used to be like the top kid in my class, like in middle school. And now I'm like so behind. I didn't understand any of the information that they were talking to me about. And so having that moment of like, maybe this isn't meant for me. I had so many of those moments all through high school where I'm like, I don't know if school is meant for me. I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I'm smart enough. I don't know if, you know, you start questioning your worthiness and your your intelligence because of it. And it takes a lot to break out of that. And so, I mean, I had the opposite experience going to college. I went to a college where it was one of the poorer CSUs in the system, uh, California State School. And I went to number two in academics, this high school that was like very much invested in. And I feel like college was easier for me. I'm like, oh, I could do this. Like, this is easy. (laughs) Classes are shorter. The teachers are more chill. Like, I felt like it was so easy. And so I feel like I kind of experienced both sides of like feeling like you're the dumbest kid in class and then feeling like you're the smartest. No, and, you know, I think it is all bound to, you know, what support system do you have around you in the time of decision-making? And um, when you're facing these obstacles for the first time ever, you're bound to have very little support system, right? It's not something you can go back to your parents and be like, when you were met with this decision, what you do, right? Like most of our peers, right? For us, it's like, I'm alone. And there's, and it's hard for me to make an educated decision because I don't know what the consequences will be from Native side. And we tend to gravitate to what you're the safest, right? Like what decision is going to make me sure the safest? And uh, that's often why that is a, is a decision made out of comfort and not a decision out of growth. And so for me, what really pushed the boundary was I mean, a lot of people don't know the story and I, I just recently started sharing it because I think it's powerful to how we persevere and what have recently become to learn and what the, 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 the actually the fundamental one aspect of success, right? Uh, a lot of people is that smart people are successful or a dedicated work successful, but it's not. I learned that the one factor to success is grit, right? And uh, for me, I actually got suspended from college three to four times, I think. And um, it's I'm a troublemaker. This troublemaker. <laughs> 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 it's crazy to say this in this platform. But yeah, I, I was suspended from college, actually, three or four times. And that's because when I started, I started as a civil engineer, which is what my mom wanted me to be at the time. 
And I didn't like it. It was boring. It was not what I was into. And so I was, I was like, I was like mixing, I went to a class and then like, I was like mixing concrete. And the only, the only memory of, of concrete mixing that I had was like the Haitian guys that were building houses around my neighborhood. Going back for a circle to the Haitian story, right? And so to me, wow, look at that. I also speak on, on our own unconscious bias, right? Where to me, I was like, I don't want to be the civil engineer because I do mixing concrete. And the only people I saw mixing concrete were the Haitians around my house, oh, right? And, and my perception of like, that's not a good look, right? Like, I'm not here mixing concrete to look like a Haitian guy, right? But wow. it goes back to how rooted our biases goes back to, right? And so I was not a fan of that. And I was studying out of school and I remember getting my first suspension and put into academic probation and then selling out of academic probation. And I went and, and, and one thing that I was really good at was that I selling myself. So I remember going to the theme where we're just saying, I'm sorry, I'm going to do better. I think I can do better and getting a letter from a counselor. And, and that, that weighed my first suspension, right? Only to come back and realize that I was pulled into the whole party and you know, like this stuff. And at that time, they suspended me again because I did that again. They said, well, that's it. Like, we had to go. We can't have you anymore. And the only way I could stay is if I switched majors. So I ended up switching to, to some random major. I think it was called multidisciplinary, which was like the only major in school that I was like, they're going to start me because this is not really a real major. Okay. And I can just major. It's, it's like a composition of a bunch of classes that you want to take. Right. Um, oh, so wow. I managed my way to get into that. <laughs> To be able to stick around and I didn't even tell my mom this stuff. Like mom doesn't know that none of this stuff is happening. So I always found a way to stick around college. And then um I wasn't doing thirty day there, but eventually on my after my third suspension, I remember the school being very serious about like you gotta go. Yeah. You got to yeah. go. And so after three, I, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so I remember me saying, Well, I like it's over is really over for me. And I remember hitting rock bottom and I was in the middle of the night. Um, and I remember calling my mom and saying, mom, it's not, it's not, it's not going well. And, um, mind you, I'm the youngest of all my five siblings. I have two siblings from my dad's side and I have, um, two from my mom's side and, um, all of them dropped out of school. Like, uh, none of them passed, the, passed beyond like the first semester or something. And, um, you know, I remember my mom putting a lot of pressure on me saying, you know, it's almost like you are my last chance of making something out of the sacrifice that I did to bring you guys all here. And I remember having a very serious conversation with my mom, with my mom because I guarded her from all my previous family in college because I really wanted to make this happen for her. And, but it got to a point where it was really pulling down on me and I sat down at my desk crying and calling her like at 12 o'clock at night and i was like yeah i don't think i can do this right i don't think i can i can i can succeed in but i tried um and she didn't know how much i tried to, to get all the avenues and ways in which i can do this um i was good at the whole math and the physics but there were other classes i needed to take but, but i was that that was i couldn't just couldn't get my, my head around and um at that point i feel like that's what my mom liberated me from that pressure and i remember those words very actually very vividly in my head and she said you know it's okay to come in 
Like, you know, if, if you, if you really think this is not for you, if you really think there's not something that will make you happy, it's okay to just drop it and come home. And, and I, I, I'll be just happy. Right. And I, I think that's when I reflected on that night and realized that I was finally giving myself the opportunity to do this for myself and not necessarily for my mom. And I remember that now without having the pressure of like, oh, I met with this decision, this obstacle where ultimately back then, right, to any other person, the decision to, to, to default to failure is the safest bet for those, for everybody else, because, you know, continuing persistent is, is the uncharted territory, right? But for me, it was slightly different because the decision to continue was my second bet because it was the bet that would keep in good terms with my boss. And so what influenced me to choose otherwise and persist throughout college was that I felt that if I failed, I was going to ruin this relationship with my mom as the last opportunity. But what was happening is that that once you get that pressure lifted off your shoulder, you have much clarity of where you truly want to go. And I said to myself, I'm going to try this one more time, but I'm not doing this for my mom. I'm actually doing this for myself. And I'm going to go for what I find to be the best fit for me. And um, I remember I um, hit up my five dance friends in college and I said to them, hey guys, tomorrow meet me in this room at this time. And don't ask for questions. Like I'll explain everything tomorrow. <laughs> um, don't worry about it. We'll, we'll, like it, it's something very serious. I really need you to show up. And they all have to showed up to the room. And I was very honest with them. I said, hey, so I kept this from all of you guys. I've been struggling in school. I've been suspended three times. Um, and I'm lucky I can really kick out uh, unless I do something to flip this whole story around. I'm choosing to stay. And I'm going to do some things to, to, to make this work. And I don't know if it's going to work, but I need one thing from you guys. And that is that I no longer need friends that are going to prioritize the party and, and the going out and the hanging out and, and the good chilling vibes and the extracurriculars. You guys are my closest friend in college. And if I'm going to make this work for me, I'm going to need my friends to make the best version of me possible forward, right? Um, you guys are my support system. I don't have a mom or a dad or family that I'm just thinking what this is all about. We are all we got. And so I want all of us to agree that Every day for throughout the week, we're going to meet every day for at least one hour and we're going to focus on studying and that we're not going to invite each other to parties and hanging out unless we prioritize studying and doing homework first. Like it's okay for us to hang out given that we already give each other one hour to do studying and homework (laughs) together. And then once a week, I would like for us to get together and just ponder on what it would be to be an entrepreneur in tech. And so we formed this group right then and there called the Power Group. And what we were doing was that we decided to set up a time where every day we'll meet for one hour to do homework. And then once a week, we will come to my house that where we live. And we would just say, 
what can we think about today? And each of us were given a CEO from tech, like Tesla, Apple, Google, Bob, Dropbox. <laughs> um, and each of us was given a company. And the whole idea was that during that one hour a week, we were to, supposed to emulate what these CEOs had to face while building this product in, in real life. Wow. And so we would be like, okay, if I'm the CEO of Tesla, what will be the next product and why? And so that put it into like researching the CEO, these companies, their business model, the way they did product design, how they did product marketing. And that, what happened, I went from like a 2.4 GPA to ultimately a 3.2 GPA. Going back to mechanical engineering that I got stuck into the program because I made a deal with a dean that if I was able to flip the whole thing around, who guaranteed me admission <laughs> into mechanical engineering. So I got into mechanical engineering, which is what, what was my passion at the time. And eventually was able to flip everything around. And given that, the success of how we all flipped our stories and excelled, we decided to formalize the program. And we turned it from like, like just hanging out thing to an actual mentorship program in school and like April to my first coaching mentorship experience uh, called Big Minds, where we thought that we wanted to pass this experience that we just put together out of necessity uh, as an opportunity for other upcoming students into school. And so we developed this mentorship program called Big Minds, where we would then mentor freshmen and sophomore coming into college and teaching them about entrepreneurship them about product design and, and how to do that. Um, and that program was very successful where then students were going to these programs, graduating from our mentorship program, getting scholarship, and switching their majors to something that they were more passionate about and being able to graduate wow. from there. From it, we even got students who, who I remember I graduated eventually, got the job at Apple, they fighting for it. And one of the scholarship took one of the students from the program into Silicon Valley and we was able to like go meet people at Google, Apple, Facebook, and eventually that came growing and growing and growing. Wow. That's like nothing on my palabras. <laughs> like that's the, that's such an amazing, one of the things I always say is like, you have to create what you wish you had when you were younger. And I think like in that moment, so many things happen. Like you just showed a moment of it almost feels vulnerable to like get your homies together and be like, listen, like I'm trying to do something different. Are y'all with me? Are y'all not? Like it's, it's almost mm -hmm. like a really vulnerable position to be in. And the fact that your homies were like, let's do it. I mean, shout out to them, shout out to them too. And shout out to you for having that moment of, I feel like your mom giving you permission to say it's okay to come home. You also gave those other people permission to, stay and study and choose a different lifestyle that's not partying and having fun a little bit you know you still gotta have fun play hard but you also you gotta still gotta have a balance right it's a balance, you still gotta right? have balance yes 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 <laughs> but being able to but being able to just choose a different path in that moment for you powerful because you hear you hear first gen talk about this pressure and this anxiety that exists right and i I feel it too. I've had it and I'm still, shout out to therapy, still learning how to unlearn a lot of those behaviors. But there is this, <laughs> shout out to therapy, but there is this sense of, I have to do it for my family. Like, I can't imagine, Hector, that pressure of like, you know, like you're the last one. You got to make things right. You got to like 
graduate, you got to do this, you got to do that. And that pressure of you have to do all of these things versus you, you're like, no, I get to do all of these things and I'm going to do it my way. It's powerful. It's daunting. It is daunting, right? Um, and, and some of us still carry that level of toxicity and, and self-hate and self-suppression into corporate America, right? Oh. Um, where some you, we, we, we show up to work and this is exactly, we, we still on that almost like we still on that kind of like survival mentality, right? When we go into corporate America and that because very tired. This is tiring. I mean, that's what it is, right? Like, how can you be the best version of yourself when you're consistently trying to to just do the bare minimum to get by, right? And not bare minimum because you want to, but bare minimum because you're too busy trying to to fight the rest of the first things around you and, and not really focusing on what truly, really fundamentally makes you happy or what you want to do, right? Um, and I think it's important for us to to learn or to unlearn. And, and I, here's a quote that I, that I, that I brought to management. I think there was a VP at Apple in a meeting and she said, in order for us to fix this issue of diversity and inclusion, sometimes it takes for us to unlearn management and learn to be human. And I remember bringing this to my boss and I was like, you know what? I, I was like, you know, I think, I don't know if you, paying attention in these presentations, but I think it's extremely important that we acknowledge that in this corporate place, there are people who are still struggling uh, with survival instinct. And yeah. that survival instinct puts us in a position where we're hypersensitive to everything around us. And we're consistently, every, every email, every, every passive aggression uh, demand, every Slack message, every notification bubble, it, it gets to the extent, and I'm telling you because it happens to me, right? Every notification bubble on Slack is a trigger for my survival instinct, right? What is the demand? Am I going to be able to fulfill the demand? Do I have, am I giving myself enough time to meet the demand? Am I going to meet, give the demand to the, to the side of quality spectrum to hear, right? Do I have to put 15 hours a, a day uh, to, 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 to show that I'm worth it or that I'm good enough? And I'll tell you this right now, my whole life, I actually haven't been told that I was good enough, right? And so like we were in the Dominican Republic, the little moneda. And uh, we had this huge event with the university and we had a different approach to how we do a technology out there. And we brought the whole team, it was okay. We've been working on researching this stuff. We think we're bringing something cool to the country. We want to have, we want to share this stuff with you. And at the end of the event with 180 something people signed up, there was this one guy who, who said, how, you know, you were born here. You were born in one of the, you know, the poorest neighborhood in the country. How does a guy like you makes it to Apple? And I said, well, first and foremost, you have to undeniably believe that you're good enough. And one of my favorite quotes from Steve Jobs is that once you realize that all the things around you are made by people, you know, more smarter than you, your life will become much broader. And so sometimes we're consistently seeking validation. Right, because that's the survival instinct, right? Like, it's like you always need that validation, whether you 
that next test, right? Was I yes, good sir. enough? Did, did I just enough to get by, right? Under the radar. Because when there was this idea that everything that we have earned is for privilege and everything that we have been given has been at the mercy of somebody else and not because we fundamentally truly earned it. And so I said, never in my life, neither in high school, neither in college, and even in my early days at Apple, have I ever been told that I was good enough for the job that I did. And yet I had to find the motivation to persist. And I think that's important, yeah. right? Once you realize that you don't need that hate, there no validation to validate your experience, to validate your knowledge, to validate your skill set. Um, you break from the shackles of ignorance, right? And you learn that you are inheriting a system that has a first generation. you like, okay, this is just another phase that I have to go through. But if I overcome, the next then the generation after me, my kids, my grandkids won't have to deal with this ever again. Mm. Who we do it for. I think the the beautiful thing about being <laughs> first gen is that you're almost doing it for both generations. You're not doing it just for yourself. You're doing it for tus papis, your abuelitos, like the past generations, the ones that are still here. And then also your future generations that you haven't met. Like it's, we're in the in-between. We're like the bridge between those two worlds. And it's a lot to carry. And being able to turn that burden into motivation it has been like my lifelong like journey. <laughs> like, how do I take this off tough. my shoulders so it's not heavy, but how do I turn it into fuel, into motivation to keep doing what I'm doing? You know, it's a, it's a process. You certainly have to speak up. Like you certainly have to be authentic. And, and I love you for that. Like, I, I think you're just one of the most authentic people I see uh, in my network, right? You have a little and I love the podcast because it's kind of, like, I, I almost feel like um, when you first started the whole thing, it was like, it was based on that. And basically, you know, I was like, yeah, I'm going to let you. I remember even when I, you know, when I see you pose about going into meetings or traveling for work, you're like, yeah, I'm gonna my, 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 ear, my hoop earrings on. I'm going to get myself Decide. ready. I'm going to show up like this. Right? <laughs> and that, that's yeah. important. And I think that's, that's, Ultimately, extremely important, you know, because if you don't bring the authenticity, if you do not bring yeah. the authenticity into the room, you are depriving the room of the much needed diversity and the what diversity that we're actually fighting for, right? So we are the first advocate and the first line of support for this soul diversity we're seeking after, right? And so, and, and it, it affects every line of the work, you know, I, I remember we, I worked, you know, what, two years ago, last year, we got uh, an email, right, saying, hey, so due to infl inflation, we're going to, this year, we're going to slightly overcompensate you for the inflation, please, you know, because things is going crazy. <laughs> but you don't know what that compensation will be, and you will have to wait until end of year review to, to find out what that number is. And that was like, Six months or seven months, like a long uh, away. And I remember Amazon had just come up and was like, yo, we're going to double everybody's salary and increase effective immediately. And I remember Microsoft was like, yeah, we're going to do the same effective immediately. <laughs> and pretty much everybody who announced this stuff was like effective immediately. And people kind of knew what the ballpark numbers were too. So I go to my boss. I was like, hey, dude, so I got this crazy email. I've been at Apple for X number of years and I never seen this before. Like, what's up with this? It's like, what do you mean? Well, yeah, like, it was so vague. Telling how they're going to do is more money. They don't tell us when or how much. And so I kind of like to know 
it's kind of important, right? Because right. these are important yeah. things to consider when you make a decision, right? And mm-hmm. at that point, I remember Facebook was like, you know, poking a lot of employees. Uh, it was like pulling, pulling out employees, offering them like twice, three times their salaries. And so to me, it almost seemed like an effort for Apple to, to, to kind of re- recreate talent. So I went to my manager at the time and I was like, Hey, dude, um, he was like, Oh, I have to, well, I, I guess I could, I got two things for you. Would you like to hear like the manager version of that response? Or would you like to hear like the me version? I was like, well, if both, if both, it's right now. So, well, as, 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 a, as, a, as, a, as me, I would say, focus on the work. At the end of the day, you know, you agree on a salary, you sign some paperwork, and you agreed that the conversation that was offered to you was fair to the kind of work that you were going to do. So I was, I was telling you about how my manager, we got this email from Apple about compensation. And, you know, they, we all was like kind of concerned. Brother comes up to my manager and like, hey, I would like to know a little more detail because this email was very vague. Right? It wasn't really saying anything other than just like, we'll give me some money at some point. And he chose to like, well, what, what version of the answer do you want to hear? Well, me and my personal response to that question or as a manager. I said both, and they're both insightful. And the way he said it was, as a person, I would say, well, I will focus on the work because your conversation was a package that you, you agreed upon when we were having a discussion. And um, anything outside of that is a bonus, right? Take it with, as a token of gratitude. Um, but you agreed that your current conversation was fairly compensated. So I wouldn't pay too much attention to the email because that was just Apple saying that they might be of extra money later. And he's like, the manager, I don't, and then he's like, as a manager, I actually don't know any more than you because um, I had the same concern and I escalated the concern to leadership because I thought it was weird that Apple sent an email like that and not getting anywhere, right? They weren't really specific about the numbers. And so I was like, okay, cool. Well, I think it's interesting that you're asking me not to be concerned about this when you had some concern and you escalated those concerns. I think it is important for me to know because he was like, well, but, and at the end of the day, if you don't feel like you are not being properly compensated, you have options. And in my head, I, I know exactly what he meant with you have options. The option was like, you can leave or find another job somewhere else. And so my response to that was like, well, you see, you're right, I do have options, but I would like to make more educated, you know, I would like to make an educated uh, decision because while I do have options, I feel like my options are not fully supported with all the information that I need to make that decision. Um, right. Sure, Apple's going to give us more money, but the reality is I don't know how much money that is. At the end of the day, um, inflation is 9% nationwide on average. But it's nineteen percent in California, and so if this compensation to offset inflation is nowhere near the national average at the bare minimum, then I'm still losing. And so I would like to know that ahead of time to make a decision whether or not this extra compensation worked for me, because just like COVID, that does affect people of different backgrounds disproportionately. Inflation affects people disproportionately because while to you your paycheck is just to take care of whatever your, 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 your needs are and your expenses. To others like me, that paycheck is to support myself 
but also my family everywhere else outside of the Bay Area. The to some people, it's the paycheck that pays for the crazy amount of student loans that we had to take to get here. To some people, inflation affects people differently, and some of us have expenses that you might not have because you're you you might have parents or family that have retirement plans and for what for one k you know and so but that's not to say that that's a story for all of us and so it is concerning that that i need to know what these offsets are because if it doesn't work for me and i would like to find a place that does work for me right and i feel like in many ways that's a struggle with the first gen that even things like inflation affect us differently because like you said we're working for both sides. We're working for the generation before us. <laughs> oh, sad. What is it for the generation <laughs> after us? I mean, a lot of people Yeah, it's like generational struggle. wealth and like generational equity, like, you know, equality. Like it's we're honestly, it's literally, <laughs> literally like you were, I was, I was laughing when you said 401k because I'm like, I'm, I always say I'm like 401k Jasmine or that least like, that's, that's me. I'm like my parents 401k. And so, yeah, you're working for something deeper than just a paycheck to pay for your car, your shoes, your rent. Like, it's deeper. It's way deeper. Hey, on one side, you're doing damage control. On the other side, you're like, oh, let it be future thinking. It was like, but, but hey, half of my money goes towards just paying for, the, for things of the past. And so it's really hard for me to invest yeah. into the future. But we do have systems in place that to ensure that our kids won't have to worry about our retirement plans, right? You know, we have our 401k plus some, plus some other things that, that, that are going to be the safety net that my kids and your kids want to hear about. No, I, I sometimes, somehow I have to work for myself and for my parents, right? So that's a good thing. Oh. Right. And also working for yourself, like you got to spoil yourself throughout all of it. And it's like past, future, present, like it's the total. We're, We're living in like every time zone between. and all generations. <laughs> All the in between. Oh my All god! And I want to quickly talk about. I want to quickly talk about Moneda though, because I love that you're building this platform. Like, tell us what is Moneda? How did you build it? Why did you build it? And where is it? Yeah, that's a good question. All right. So, uh, what is Moneda? Um, so, Moneda is a very special project, and uh, the project is based out of the Dominican Republic uh, first, but it's meant to actually grow into Latin America. In, in short terms, Moneda is a digital wallet for the underbanked. Um, and what does that mean? What is the underbanked? The underbanked is the is the seventy percent of the population of Latin America who don't have access to financial services or any form of banking infrastructure. And this can be as big as eighty percent, and sometimes even ninety in some places in Latin America. Uh, in the Dominican Republic, more specifically, right now, the government claims is only fifty-three percent, but the statistics and the data show that it's more closer to eighty, right? And so, why why a digital wallet? We all know wallets, right? Wallets is not something. What we're trying to do is like, well, if you think about the wallets that exist in America, right? You have like Cash App and Venmo, if I PayPal, right? And if I ask the one basic question of like, well. How do you tap up, right? How do you put money in that wallet? Like, sure, they facilitate a lot of great services, but how do you get the money in there? So when you realize that is the answer is always banking, right? Oh, I use my bank account, right? And so for the most part, these platforms were built and designed with the expectation that everybody who uses them has their minimum. 
a bank account, right? It, that bank account doesn't have to be a digital platform, but nonetheless, it's an infrastructure that you can put the money in, right? And you can put the money out. <clears throat> but, and so there's a part of the things, right? You know, I'm thinking about in the moment of COVID when everything closes, right? We, we saw the, the hike uh, and the spike of gig economy service workers, right? So we see things like Uber and Uber Eats and DoorDash, the demand on those went up the roof because everybody was using those. But if you don't have a bank account, how do you have access to these things? So in places like Latin America, Africa, and, 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 and India or emerging markets, these gig economy platforms do exist. And the internet has been diffusing so fast throughout the world, doing parts to the work of like Facebook and other companies who are trying to democratize the internet and, and give people access to them. But now that these platforms are put in place, a lot of people are driving um, business through them, right? Think about content creation. I know during the pandemic, there's a lot of great stories of uh, people in Africa who became instant stars through social media and were monetizing the internet. But how do you monetize it on the internet if you don't have an infrastructure to receive those payments and that currency? And so for us, one pivotal moment was when I went to the Dominican Republic uh, for vacation during COVID and I was there for like a month working remote. And so I hired a cleaning lady um, and I was like, okay, now I got to pay her. And I had a tough time paying her. So I thought it was because I didn't have a bank account that was local. So I tried to get a bank account locally and I lasted three months trying to open a bank account and I couldn't because the bank was asking for a crazy amount of paperwork. I was like, that's crazy. And, and so I brought all the paperwork from America, but they didn't believe like, oh, there's no way that you work for this company. There's no way these are your, your pay steps, this the amount of money you earn. So I had to hire a lawyer to help me notarize all that paperwork. And even after oh hiring a lawyer, they still wouldn't open a bank account. And so... I managed to get a bank account through the Scotia Bank, which is actually a Canadian bank, and they have ties into America through American Express. So I managed to get a bank account through them that operates in the region, but they're not local to the country. But I was like, okay, at least I have a bank account that I can wire this money to her. And so when I asked her to give me her bank information, she was like, I don't have a bank account. And by the way, this is a lady that was like 40 something years old. And I was like, oh, okay. So how, how do you, how do you, how do you say, oh, yeah, yeah, I don't have a bank account. And she said it so like, normal that to me was like it was a shock like it's zero with kidding think right. that, that was a concern so i was like okay right. i wonder how many people live like her and um i was like well we have uber we have airbnb and other stuff and one of the things one of the insights that we have that most people don't have was like well you do know that in our free tour for uber you need a bank account and so what's crazy enough is that the way the legislation in the Dominican republic is that in order for you to have a bank account you need to have an official letter of appointment. What makes an official letter of appointment official? It has to come from an official company. And typically, this official company only hire people with degrees. And so that's like, what, 10% of the country? Right? And so if right. you do some sort of like gig, if you're a gig economy worker, which most of the people in these markets are, where do you get an official letter of appointment? So you're just... Iced out from getting an account, right? And so I was like, well, that's crazy. And so I did some quick Google search. I was like, okay, how many people have this issue? And I, the country claimed is 53%. I was like, that's crazy. That's wild that 53% of the whole population of a country don't have a bank account. And the first thing that came to mind was like, in the middle of COVID, for people 
who don't have a degree, Uber is an option, right? Uber Eats is an option. These are great employment opportunities, right? If you think about who are these gig economy workers to these technology platforms, technology is and can improve the economic well-being of a country and a nation and people. But these platforms support those. And for people who can't get a normal job, people who are laid off, guess what? People who are laid off today, Uber is an option, right? But what happens is that these platforms are designed to support the informal employment market. But then now they're met with the bottleneck, like, well, I can't If I don't have a bank account, I can't do DoorDash or Uber Eats. If I don't have a bank account, I cannot do Airbnb or Airbnb experience, right? Which is driven by local culture. And so I was like, okay, there's no way Uber has this problem here because how do they meet the demand? I only use Uber in this country. And so I would realize that every time we order, I would order Uber Eats, it was like a probability check whether or not I'm able to get the food because Uber was like, oh, there's not a, there's not a driver nearby to deliver the food. So we can take your order. And then when you order an Uber, it could take anywhere between 10 to 15 minutes for the Uber to arrive because there's not enough drivers. So I decided to wow. perform a survey and I started taking hundreds of Uber and just asking every Uber driver, do you have a bank account? Because I was like, how do they do it? And I learned wow. that in the Dominican Republic, people were hacking the system. So the way, what 80% of all the drivers are interviewed said that they do not have a bank account. And that the way that they make it work is by borrowing a bank account from a friend a, a sibling or family member or cousin and aunt. And I was like, well, you borrowing what? And this idea of like borrowing a bank account, where do you hear that? Like, this is person, this is your money. This is like, we're thinking about real money, right? And so I know, piss off the wrong person. It's not going to be your money anymore. It's not going to be your money, exactly. Okay. And I was like, I've never heard of this idea borrowing a bank account. That's crazy. And so they had to literally borrow a bank account or pay them out. Then they got to meet that person. But that person first had to go to the bank and make a line for an hour to withdraw the money. And then that person takes a commission from lending them the account and going through all the troubles. And then that person gets eight, 90% of their earnings. Oh, it's a point. whole other business. It's a whole other and business. And it's a whole other business. Uh, and I was like, that is crazy. Oh my God. And we wow. know that that is a problem to Uber because now Uber takes 30% of the commission. And what happens is these drivers, to avoid going through all those hoops, they then say, okay, when you get a, a ride, they'll sit, they'll text you through the, to, through the chat and they'll say things like, hey, can you pay in cash? And like most of us don't carry cash. So I say no. And then they'll cancel you and wait for the next ride. And so most of them, rely on cash transactions through Uber, but then it creates a liability for Uber because now Uber cannot take their 30%. And so Uber has this right. huge problem and they've been looking to solve this for a very long time. And so at that point, it was like, hey, something got to give. Somebody got to fix this. And so that's what that is. And so we figure, what if a digital wallet is more than just paying? What if a digital wallet is also a way to earn, right? What if you can, what if we can make a digital wallet for people who never seen what banking is like. And what if we can allow for that wallet to be plugged into things like Uber, so then Uber pays them to this wallet. What if they can use this wallet to send money to the loved ones and do peer-to-peer, 
right? The basic thing that we can we take for granted, but we know that you can only do peer to peer if you have a bank account. And so the big question was like, well, if we can have them get this wallet that is just beyond payment, but rather also facilitates earnings, how did they get the money in there? Because there's no bank account. And so what we did was like, well, what if we can create the Uber for financial services? And that was the pivotal moment there. I was like, what if needing to deposit money into the wallet or needing to withdraw money to the wallet is like needing a ride? And what if there was people within the community who were connected to a banking infrastructure and can be your proxy to that underlying segment? And so we decided to test this. We built like, we, we flew the, we, I put a group of friends there. I was like, oh, I don't that. Came up from this country. Got this crazy idea. There was this problem. And I remember I, I, I called a bunch of friends of mine into a meeting and I pitched them this idea. I was like, yo, there is this very crazy problem and this is what's happening. And I think that we can solve this. Who'll be willing to, to jump and try to solve this with me? And there was a lot of people interested. And I said, well, there's only one requirement. If you really want to help me solve this problem, um, you need to book a flight in the next three weeks and meet me in the Dominican Republic for two weeks. And sure enough, <laughs> I got seven crazy people that didn't even know each other to book a flight to the Dominican Republic in wow. three weeks. And we all met in the Dominican Republic and we started talking to real users. And we was like, hey, you know, what is it like to have this problem? And what are the things that, that what are the issues that you, that you have? And what we learned was that people without bank accounts pay more for utilities and services than people who do. Um, it, so 15% of a total household income is allocated solely to just transportation. And that's because, for example, this lady we met, um, in order for her to pay her water bill, right, she needs to take to public transportation and there's traffic. So it takes about an hour and a half right. to get to the destination. And then once you get there, the rest of the 80% of the country who also have to get there to pay with the same bill on the same day, then there's a huge line. So then she spent about an hour just getting lines to pay for her water bill. So when oh she God. pays the water bill, there's also a fee, a pressure fee because there's a teller, there's a physical person processing catering to her, right? It's a service that you know, it's not digital. So somebody has to pay a, 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 a store, a front store, with, and paying an hour, hourly employee. So there's a service to paying in person to support the hourly employee who's processing the payment. And then she has to take the two public transportations back home. So at the end, her water bill is the bill of the water plus the processing fee plus the four public transportations to get there plus the opportunity cost. Because this is our hourly employee and every hour that they're paying for service is an hour that they're not working or making money. And so that is more than we pay for water because we can just do that from the comfort of our own home to our mobile devices. And so one of that is intended to solve that problem. Wow. What a, I mean, me dejaste sin palabras otra vez. I'm just like, this is such a, it's such a beautiful thing. I read this book. I forget what it's called. It's it's about design thinking, though. And there was a... Um, the design of everyday things? What is it? The design of everyday thing. It might be that one, actually. But there's a line in there that says, 
every like it's what you were saying earlier like everything that we're around was created to solve a problem and it was created by someone like the chair someone thought okay well what if we sat on something that was comfier like let's create it like what if we had a desk that was an l shape which is what i'm at right now that's why i'm thinking about it but it all came from someone thinking of this is a problem what if xyz and i feel like that's exactly what you did you like saw a problem and you're like well what if we solve that problem doing this and this and that and the fact that you were able to pull people together and los locos fueron a dr to, <laughs> to work on this idea like <laughs> i'm just it's impressive because you really came up with an idea to solve a bigger issue and the i heard you say like this is the starting point you're going to expand to latin america like it's such a a beautiful thing because you're creating access in something that I think is super important. How many of those people that are cleaning, driving, don't make money and miss out on opportunities to, I don't know, pay their bills or pay all the transportation they have to take? Like, there's some real issues that affect our everyday lives and you're really solving that with Moneda. So shout out, shout out, yeah, shout but, out. But- and there's a lot of values to that, right? Like I think uh, one of the things. So today I'm a, I'm a software I'm, I'm a software I do accessibility at Apple, right? And one of the things that that I learned very early in accessibility work is that while we tend to focus on the most marginalized communities to solve problems, um, finding a solution to those marginalized people tend to improve the overall experience for everybody else. And so often enough, a lot of companies and a lot of people don't want to solving this very kind of like corner case problems because they think oh, we're spending too much effort into this very small niche of people that are not profitable. But but the reality is that's not true. And the data statistics shows it's not true. And that's because, for instance, in the case of Moneda, what we are now saying, okay, we're literally building an infrastructure for these people who don't have access to banking. Because now what we're doing literally is creating a network of service facilitators who are willing to become proxy for these individuals who don't have access to the network. But these individuals can now become content creators. These individuals can now become service providers. These individuals can now become part of the main driving force economy that can generate income from outside of the country, right? So without this technology, these very same individuals are relying on the local economy to thrive and survive. Right. And even those, even then, it needs to be cared. But now, with our infrastructure, it allows these individuals to now funnel resources from outside of that local economy. Right. They can now become long distance workers, which they didn't, they weren't, they weren't, they didn't have access to so before. But even more importantly, for people like you and I, when we now go into the Dominican Republic, right? Typically, what happens when we go back into our home countries is that we had to take out dollars in cash and bring it home and find an exchange house to be able to pay for things and services locally. But now with Moneda, that's no longer the case, right? With Moneda, now you can go into the country, use your bank account for the US and top yourself up some pesos. And now you can pay this person who doesn't even have a bank account directly to Moneda. So it makes your life safer. It makes your experience safer, but also creates more financial opportunities for these local individuals who now have access to your pocket through Moneda, right? And so we're ultimately reducing the friction between engaging these very much underground communities in these countries. And so that w- that came from like thinking about the very small problem, but now presenting services to you and, and the rest of the country yeah. and the global economy after that. And is this app everywhere now? Like anyone can access it? Or what was the process for that? Yeah, so it's not. So uh, 
Oh, okay. We are. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting. It's trigger, 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 trigger stuff. You know, so it's, we're mostly launching in the art first. It's going to take some time, maybe about six months to a year before we move to other countries. So a child's a thing. We're currently scouting in Salvador and Ecuador. We already have some uh, potential relationship out there that help with us do uh, product interaction in those, in, the, in, the, in those regions. But uh, in the Dominican Republic, the product actually goes live this July, interestingly enough. Oh, um, cool. We have uh, a beta out where we, we give certain people access to the product and that's the other stuff as we learn more to really fundamentally ensure that we're solving the end problems for these users. And so we have investors. So we, we, we oh, you know, I want to say that they're too loud. <laughs> we, I don't want to say that too loud, but uh, yeah, so we have, we have investors now. So we got some people who, some angel investors who thought that solving this problem is, is, is cool and, and we're getting some funding. And currently we, we, I am arranging things to, to exit, you know, some fruit company employer, you know, and kind of like go do my own thing. And so there's a lot in the works that happening very, very, very bad. But yeah, so we, we are doing July. We hope to be outside of the Dominican Republic within six months to a year. So Hector is a dancer, software engineer, Latino in tech, first gen, entrepreneur, et cetera. God. <laughs> listen, listen, this is a lot, it's a lot, but I think it's, I, it's a, it. it's, I think we all, I think we are, right? I think, yeah. I think the, the, the hustle and the survival mentality, I think we find very intriguing and interesting ways to get by and sometimes our own struggle serve as a collective set of experiences that really diversify our skill set, right? The question is whether or not we put those to work and whether or not we have the courage and the support system to take that leap of faith and say, well, let's exit this, this slaving culture that we're being taught to, to, it's, it's like that donut that was hanging from a string in our bag, like chase after this and, and getting to that in college to chase after this dream and, and just sure, don't be an hourly worker, not be the, the, uh, the, uh, um, a salary worker, but, but we'll work those 15, 20 hours a day and then just go home and sleep and just be tired enough that you get just enough sleep to wake up again and just continue to do that work and, and, and occupy your mind from thinking about other things that suit you better or your family or your next generation, right? And so it's tough. We, we, we had to do so many things that prevent us from, from finding a path to exit the, the toxic cycle of just like, you know what? How much better is this generation in the past? We go from hourly to salary, but is our number of hours of work actually shifting? Or is uh, our conversation no. package just slightly, <laughs> or is our conversation just slightly wrapped up in a different package just to make us seem like we're making much improvement? Yeah. Oh man, I can talk to you for days and I am like, Truly, I think one of the things that I'm taking away personally is this idea of you can exit those cycles, but you can also dream too. And I, I know you didn't touch on this dreaming piece, but I always think about this first gen and dreaming and thinking of you telling your mom, like, I'm going to go into Juilliard and I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And your mom's like, bueno, hijo, escoge algo que te va a dar dinero. You know what I mean? Like, 
which makes sense. We, we come from a place of scarcity. Our families want us to make money. But you still having backstage open and you pay for it and still dreaming about that. You creating an idea to solve a problem and dreaming and making it happen. Like, I think we have this power as first gen, whether we're immigrants or whether we are children of immigrants, we have this capability to dream and dream big. And I think we're taught as kids that we're not allowed to because we have to choose a safe path, a salary, a benefits and et cetera. But I think mm-hmm. the two can coexist. You can have the security and you can also dream. And I feel like you're a really prime example of doing both. Yeah, and I, and I think um, that, that does sense. Thank you. And I think just to, to wrap it up on that note, it was a beautiful note. And then I just thought about this. Because you really just make like fun on, on that idea of dreaming and the idea of like safety, right? And sometimes our trauma prevents us from launching ourselves into rest. You know, when this first generation experience is that we know where we come from and somehow we find ourselves in a new place. In a new height, and our trauma makes us think, "Oh my God, I don't ever want to go back there." And we try our absolute hardest to ensure that we're never ever again in those positions because we know what it is to be there, and we now know what it is to be on the other side of the coin. And sometimes those new ventures do present themselves as risk of returning you to those places but what we don't often realize is that it's not the same place it might not have the safety that you have today but it is new uncharted territory and uh, no one in history have we not seen value from places nobody else has been right and i think that ties back into like being a first gen is actually a position of power because for the first time we're going into places and bringing in value to your family that they didn't have access to before. Oh, 100%. I want to end the conversation with Avrindis. I actually have water today because I am trying to drink more water and less coffee. <laughs> but I want to end with Avrindis. Míralo. Tienes café. This is my coffee. It looks like... It is my coffee. It is. It is my coffee. I, I put ice and it is my coffee. So, yes, it is actually my I was going to say, it looks like it's like una coca. <laughs> I was like, it's is not, this secretly drinking soda? <laughs> but I want to no, cheers no. the brindis and aquí tengo mi agua, tu con tu café. And I want to give you the chance, Hector. What do you want to cheers to and what do you want to manifest for our Latino community? Ooh, a tough one. <laughs> You know, here's to new opportunities, opportunity of placements, placement of power, the ability to use our position to extend more opportunity for people like us. Um, we, at the end of the day, we are in power. We are responsible for passing it forward. And then we can only do that when we find placement where we're given the opportunity to do so. So I want to cheers to more opportunities like these for a platform like yours that spread information within our communities 
to find new opportunities and change after our dream. So cheers to that, especially in this time of layoffs and big tech. Tons of our community members are being laid off after being promised an opportunity. So cheers to more of these opportunities and places and power to passive folk. Oh, salud. I'm drinking out of a water bottle. Don't judge me about sustainability. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but salud, salud. I might feel like I'm going to, people are going to come for me with my plastic water bottle. Oh, Gracias. Just reuse it. Just reuse it. Gracias. Yes. Gracias. Gracias. <laughs> As always, I appreciate y'all so, so much for tuning in and loving on this podcast. If you don't mind, go leave a review. Let me know what you think. Hit me up on Instagram or on LinkedIn and let me know what you want to hear more about. And see y'all next week for more Cafecito and Chisme. For all Hella Latino updates, follow Hella Latino Podcast on Instagram. You can also find me on LinkedIn. More details on my website, odalisjasmine.com. Y con mucho amor, mi hondureña.